0: It's July 1st, 1874. In Germantown, Pennsylvania, most residents are preparing for Independence Day celebrations. With only three days to go, excitement levels in the house of Christian and Sarah Ross are reaching fever pitch. The Rosses are a well-to-do middle-class family who live on East Washington Lane, around seven miles from the center of Philadelphia. It's a smart-looking house set back from the main road, The well-manicured lawns and three acres of land surrounding it give the appearance of wealth. In truth, while the Ross family are comfortable, they are not rich. Christian runs a wholesale dry goods dealership in the city center. They have a modest staff, a couple of nannies to help with their eight children, plus a cook and a gardener. The last few years have been hard, financially speaking. The stock market crash the previous year has cost them dearly, and Christian works long hours to make sure their standard of living doesn't slip. The kids go crazy every year at the sight of fireworks exploding above the house. Not all of them will be here for Independence Day 1874. Of the eight children, only five are at home. The two eldest boys have gone to spend the summer with their grandmother in Middletown, some 90 miles to the west. Sophia, the eldest girl, has accompanied her mother to Atlantic City for a few weeks' vacation. The two younger boys, six-year-old Walter and four-year-old Charlie, race around the lawn after breakfast, chasing each other and playing hide-and-seek in the bushes dotted around the garden. When they spot their father, they race across, begging him for money to spend on fireworks. Christian smiles. He'll buy some in town later today after work. He also promises them a cart full of sand to let off their firecrackers into to lessen the risk of anything catching fire. He bends down, gives each boy a kiss on the head, telling them he'll see them after work and that they're to behave themselves for the nannies. He has no way of knowing it, but it may be the last time he'll ever lay eyes on one of them. With his wife being away, he makes a point of coming home earlier than usual, arriving back at the house late afternoon. His daughters Marion, Annie, and Bridget skip out to meet him, but there's no sign of the boys. Christian asks one of the nannies where they are. She replies that they have been playing on the sidewalk with the McDowell children from next door. Christian wanders back down the driveway, but the street is empty. He shakes his head. It's pretty common for the neighborhood kids to be in and out of each other's houses, so he doesn't give it a second thought and heads back to his own house to put the fireworks he bought somewhere safe. It's not until six o'clock when the cook calls the family to dinner that Christian starts to get worried. He sends the girls along one side of the street while he takes the other, knocking on neighbors' doors to ask if the boys are there. One such neighbor, Mrs. Mary Kidder, calls him over, asking what the problem is. As soon as he explains his boys are missing, her face drops. She tells him that she heard the boys talking to a man from behind the bushes that separate their properties. Right after that, she recalls a wagon passed by her house with two men in it. Hey, would the boys have gotten into it? She asks him. Christian's mind drifts back to something that happened a few days back how the boys had come inside holding pieces of candy that they said a strange man had given them down by the front gate. Christian replies that yes, they likely would be trusting enough to climb inside. He thanks her for her time and heads straight to the police station at the local town hall. In the days that pass, only one boy, Walter, will return home. Ransom notes follow, but Charlie's whereabouts will remain a mystery. Until five months later when police answer a call to stop a burglary in progress. A fierce shootout leaves one burglar dead and another mortally wounded. The dying thief, Joe Douglas, will drop a bombshell as he bleeds out at the scene. He claims that he and his dead partner, William Mosher, are the people who took Charlie Ross. But where is Charlie now? Where did that fateful carriage ride end back in July? And with Mosher already dead and Douglas soon to follow, what chance is there of bringing him home safe and sound? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Joe Douglas, of the words he spoke as he lay dying, about a four-year-old boy, lured away from his home in broad daylight. A crime that caught the nation's attention in a way never seen before. The family left behind, desperate for answers, willing to go to extreme lengths to bring their boy home and a case that changed the laws of the land. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name. Where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Any crimes against children are shocking by their nature. The thought that a child can be taken in broad daylight, from right outside their own house, is enough to panic any parent. But how could it happen in plain sight without anyone seeing? For the answer to that, we need to go back a week, back to a time when the Ross family were still intact and two men started laying the groundwork for a crime that would shock the nation. It's Friday, the 26th of June, 1874. Every member of the Ross family has gathered outside their house. Sarah Ross hasn't been well lately, constantly tired and run down. Doctors can't diagnose anything specific and have recommended rest and relaxation. She hopes to get plenty of both in Atlantic City The plan is for her eldest daughter, Sophia, to go with her for two weeks. After that, Sophia will return home and the two youngest boys, Walter and Charlie, will take her place. Sarah hugs her children, not sure exactly how long it will be before she sees them again. She promises to write and puts on a brave smile waving at them as the wagon pulls out onto East Washington Lane. Shortly after, a second wagon pulls up to take the two oldest boys, Stoughton and Harry to their grandmothers, leaving the house only half full. The younger kids are enough of a handful on their own though, and they spend much of the following day playing outside. It's not uncommon for them to wander around the neighborhood spending big chunks of time with their friends. Christian sees little of them until around 4 p.m. when six-year-old Walter comes running into the house. He's waving a large piece of candy. When Christian asks where he got it, Walter tells him that two men walking past the house had stopped to chat with him and Charlie. Christian asks if he knew either man. No, sir, says Walter. Christian doesn't give it a second thought. He sends him back out to play, seeing the gift of candy as nothing more than a random act of kindness. It's a naive mistake he'll come to regret in three days' time. On Wednesday, the 1st of July, 1874, Walter and Charlie Ross spend the day outdoors hunting for bugs in the long grass. Down by the front gate, Charlie spots the same two men from a few days ago. One of them leans over the fence, beckoning the boys towards them. The boys jog across and the man produces more of the same candy they'd enjoyed so much last time. This time though, instead of walking off along the road, one of the men asks if the boys would like to come for a ride in their wagon. Excitement gets the better of Charlie. Will you take us to buy fireworks, he asks. Of course we will, one of the men replies. The boys beam broad smiles as they head through the gate and clamber up into the wagon. Walter jumps straight into the back seat, but when he turns, he realizes he's there alone. One of the men has lifted Charlie up onto his knee up front. The driver tells the boys that there's a place that sells cheap fireworks called Aunt Susie's. At first, the boys are excited, both by the chance to ride in a wagon and the prospect of fireworks. It's not long, though, before Charlie starts to get upset at how long it's taking. He starts to cry, telling the men between sobs that he wants to go home. Almost there, says the driver. It soothes them for a few minutes, but then Walter starts to get impatient, too. He's just about to ask if they can turn around and head back when the wagon comes to a standstill. He looks out and sees a store. One of the men hands Walter a quarter and tells him to head inside and buy some fireworks for him and his brother. He does as he's told, relieved that they're finally here and excited at the thought of buying enough fireworks to light up the night sky. Walter is only inside a matter of minutes. He emerges, arms full of fireworks and his face drops. There is no sign of the wagon. He looks both ways and down the street, but it's vanished. And so has his little brother, Charlie. Back at the Ross residence, the search of the neighborhood turns up nothing. And a little before eight that evening, Christian has grown worried enough about his boys to head to the police station. He's halfway there when Christian stops and does a double take. Walking towards them is his son, Walter, alongside a man who identifies himself as Mr. Peacock. He tells Christian he found the boy in Kensington, one of the northern districts of Philadelphia. Where's your brother? Christian asks Walter. He's all right, Walter replies. He's in the wagon. Walter is surprised when he hears Charlie isn't home. He had assumed his younger brother would have beaten him back. Christian takes him home, then heads to the local police telegraph office. He arranges for a message to be sent to every station in the city with a description of the missing four-year-old. Replies begin flooding in, and half an hour later, every police station in the city has answered the alert. Nobody has seen a child matching Charlie's description. Around 11 p.m., Christian arrives at the central police station. The captain has gone home for the night, but Christian tells his story to one of the detectives on shift. To Christian's frustration, The officer passes it off as a harmless drunken prank. He says the men are likely to either bring Charlie home or just drop him off somewhere and he'll turn up soon enough. Christian isn't willing to take any chances though, and together with a few neighbors, continues to walk the streets until around 3 a.m. At 7.30 on the morning of July 2nd, he wakes Walter, lets him eat a light breakfast, then asks him what happened. Walter recounts the tale of their wagon ride. How the two men had fed them both more candy along the way, but had paid Charlie more attention. How he'd cried when he realized the wagon had gone until a kind man took pity on him and brought him home. Neither of the men had made any attempt to hide their faces and Walter is able to describe them both pretty well. The first was around 5'9", the same height as his father with a rounded full face and reddish mustache. The second man was older and taller. He had a beard and a funny-shaped nose like it had been damaged somehow. Walter is even able to describe the horse that pulled the wagon. Despite Walter's account, the police maintain a passive stance, adamant the boy will turn up. The men were probably drunk, they say. Give them time to wake up today. They'll realize their prank's gone too far and turn the boy loose. Later that afternoon he gets Walter to retrace the route they took as best he can. While Walter, at just six years old, is too young to read street signs, he's able to direct his father based on prominent landmarks and objects he remembers along the way. Amongst other things, he picks out several bridges and the local waterworks, following a route eight miles long that ends up at the store he was abandoned in front of. Along the way, Christian checks local taverns, stables, and stores, but nobody recognizes the men he describes. It's as if Charlie has vanished into thin air. In the days that follow, several theories emerge. Some claim that there have been family troubles and that Charlie had been kidnapped by relatives. Others say he has been taken by members of the traveler community. There are even a few who say Charlie is being hidden by his own father. Two frustrating days later, though, on July 4th, A letter drops on the doormat of the Ross house that quashes all these rumors. The postmark shows it was mailed in Philadelphia the day before. It's a ransom note. One that warns Christian not to go to the police. It says they have Charlie and will be in touch in a few days with details of how much money they want in return for him being delivered safely home. This is new territory for police. Never before has a child been kidnapped for money in the United States. It's so unheard of that it's not even a felony at this stage. Police say taking Charlie is a misdemeanor charge at best, and that the men would serve longer sentences if they were charged with the theft of the clothes Charlie was wearing. Sarah Ross is still in Atlantic City, blissfully unaware of what has happened to her boy. The Philadelphia Inquirer runs an article about a young boy being taken, but doesn't mention him by name. Christian goes to see his wife the same day he receives the note from the kidnappers. The first thing she does when she sees him is ask why he hasn't brought Charlie. In anguish, Christian outlines the past few days, watching the color drain from his wife's face as she hears her boy is missing. In the days that follow, the story catches fire, hitting headlines from New York to San Francisco and everywhere in between. There is a wave of sympathy for the Ross family. Letters from well-wishers praying for Charlie's return even arrive from overseas. The nature of the crime, targeting an innocent child for financial gain, creates a sense of unease across the country. America has had its fair share of outlaws, gangsters, and crooks, but kids have always been off limits until now. Now that Sarah knows, Christian takes a much more proactive approach, advertising a reward of $300 for his son's return, equivalent to over six months' wages for the average American. Just two days later, on July 6th, This substantial reward is made to look insignificant in comparison to the kidnappers' demands. A second letter arrives, this one demanding a payment of $20,000 if they want to see their son again. This is equivalent to over 30 times the average annual salary at the time. The kidnappers are quite clear about the consequences of involving the police or non-payment. If there is any deviation from their demands, Charlie will be killed. The letter also tells Christian how to communicate with the kidnappers. If he is willing to pay the ransom, he needs to take out a personal ad in the Philadelphia ledger, saying that he is ready to negotiate. Christian wastes no time, and his reply appears in the next edition on July 7th. He decides to keep his answers a little vague, in the hope that the longer it goes on, the more chance there is that the kidnappers will slip up and reveal something. His reply reads... Ross will come to terms to the best of his ability. They reply two days later, saying they are growing impatient and see his ruse for what it is. These exchanges continue, the kidnappers making comments in their letters about the press coverage of the case, letting the Rosses know they are watching. They even used the press coverage to their advantage at one point. One newspaper reports that the police are staking out certain post offices in the hope of catching one of the kidnappers mailing their letters. In response, the kidnappers simply relocate. Thanks to the publicity, police increase their level of activity on the investigation. There's a huge door-to-door search, with members of the public joining in to help. One unnamed Good Samaritan even offers to pay the ransom on Christian's behalf. Privately, however... Christian tells both his wife and the police that he does not intend to pay the money. Aside from the family fortune being depleted, he believes that paying would set a dangerous precedent, leading to more families suffering the same fate. There's also a touchingly naive view that in the absence of payment, the kidnappers will eventually get bored and return Charlie. If the criminals are getting tired of waiting, though, they don't show it. Days turn into weeks with no break in the case. On July 22nd, the mayor of Philadelphia offers a reward of $20,000 to anyone who can catch the kidnappers. That same day, Christian, via another personal ad, sends a message to the robber saying he'll comply with everything they ask. In return, he insists that Charlie be handed over to him immediately. The kidnappers say they need at least five hours before they turn him over to give them time to check and count the money. This still leaves Christian feeling uneasy, knowing they could take the money and not hold up their end of the deal to release his son. He asks them for proof that they have Charlie, an item of clothing or a lock of hair. They refuse, saying it's too dangerous to start sending things like that. What they do give him, though, is information. Descriptions of a ribbon Charlie was wearing under his hat, something that was never revealed through the press. They also share details that corroborate Walter's account of the kidnapping, telling the boys they were going to Aunt Susie's and that Charlie had been due to join his mother in Atlantic City. Finally, after this continued back and forth, they agree on a date at the end of July when Christian promises to pay the ransom and hopefully bring his boys safely home. It's midnight on July 30th, 1874, and Christian Ross sits alone in the private compartment of the rear car of a train as it pulls out of Philadelphia station. It's bound for New York and due to arrive an hour after sunrise, but there's no way he'll be able to sleep. Christian is on board with a very specific set of instructions from his son's kidnappers. He has with him a suitcase, painted white as per their last letter, His orders are to look out for a man waving a flag and ringing a bell. When he sees this, he is to throw the case, filled with a $20,000 ransom, out of the window of the moving train. Christian is taking a gamble tonight. Inside the suitcase, there is no money. In fact, there is only one item, a letter from him to the kidnappers, telling them he is willing to pay but insisting on proof of life first. There's no telling how the kidnappers will react. It could backfire spectacularly, but he can't allow himself to dwell on what happens to Charlie if that comes to pass. He stares out of the window, seeing human figures in every shadow, each time wondering if this could be the man who has his boy. Miles of dark countryside pass by, and it's only when he starts to see the soft glow of the sun peeking over the horizon that he resigns himself to the fact that the kidnappers... Are not showing up. Christian is left with no choice but to turn around and come straight back. All the way home, he asks himself whether he had done wrong, spooking the kidnappers into not showing up somehow. Aside from the police and his wife, nobody else knows there is no money in the suitcase. As it turns out, the blame lies with the press. One of the daily newspapers reported the previous day that Christian was heading to Pottsville, Pennsylvania to check out a claim that his son was being held there. Christian places another ad, saying that he'd held up his end of the bargain, but that they'd stood him up. In their reply, they admit the story in the newspaper had thrown them and that Charlie will not be hurt in any way for such an innocent mistake. They reassure him that he'll have another chance to get his son back. Christian replies, reiterating that any exchange of money for his son's freedom needs to be simultaneous. The kidnappers hold firm though, saying it has to be money first. They also pick up on the earlier offer from the mayor of a reward. The kidnappers follow the press articles closely. So they know by now that the Ross family aren't quite as wealthy as they first thought. In one letter, they say they considered having their demands. But knowing the public funds have been offered to cover the costs, they keep the figure at $20,000. Both sides are at an impasse, and the back and forth of letters and personal ads continues, albeit in something of a stalemate. But only a few days after Christian's failed train journey, they get the first real break in the case. On August 2nd, Captain George Walling of the NYPD contacts Captain Hines in Philadelphia. He claims to have information from a reliable source as to the identity of the two men who took Charlie Ross. Walling's informant gives two names, William Mosher and Joseph Douglas. This unnamed source says that Mosher and Douglas tried to rope him into a similar scheme in April of that year. Back then, The idea had been to kidnap a child from the Vanderbilts, the richest family in America. They spoke of luring the child away from the family home with candy or toys. The informant's role would have been to keep the child safe on a small boat until a $50,000 ransom was paid. Both Mosher and Douglas have criminal records, mostly petty theft, and Mosher, it turns out, is on the run from the law, having escaped from prison three years earlier in 1871. Both he and Douglas are known to have spent time in Pennsylvania earlier this summer, and police are convinced these are their men. If only they could find them. With both New York and Philadelphia police forces looking for them, everyone feels it's only a matter of time before Mosher and Douglas are found. Weeks turn into months with no sign of Charlie or his kidnappers. Even the world-famous Pinkerton Detective Agency comes up empty-handed when they try and help. By October, the stress is taking its toll on Christian, and he's forced to let his wife, Sarah, take charge of the efforts to find Charlie. On November 6th, three months after Charlie's disappearance, the kidnappers send another letter, their 23rd. The Rosses don't know it yet, but this will be the last they receive. The instructions this time are to send two relatives of their choice to New York with the ransom money and announce their arrival with an ad in the New York Herald. Someone will come to their hotel room and take the money. Any attempts to follow them or involve the police will mean Charlie dies. If the Rosses follow their instructions to the letter, the kidnappers will return Charlie within 10 hours. This time, There's no subterfuge from the family and Ross arranges for the money to be taken by his brother-in-law and his nephew. The two men wait in a New York hotel room for the whole of November 18th. But just like before, nobody shows. They return back home baffled. They've done everything these men want. So why don't they turn up to collect? The New York connection rears its head again later that month a man called William Westervelt comes forward. He says he is the brother-in-law of Mosher and is a former NYPD officer who was fired after allegations of corruption surfaced. He tells officers he is willing to cut a deal to help get Charlie back, but he won't do it for free. Not only does he want the reward money, he wants to get reinstated at his old job. Police are desperate and willing to try anything, so they agree. Westervelt feeds them information about Mosher and Douglas over the next few weeks, but none of it results in their arrest. Mosher is particularly elusive, still a free man three years after his prison break. But his luck and that of Joe Douglas is about to run out in spectacular fashion. It's 2 a.m. on the morning of December 14th, 1874. Charlie Ross has been missing for over five months. On the east side of the Upper Bay in New York, the first winter snowfall lines roofs like cake frosting. The slopes of the bay are home to a collection of villas and cottages, many of which serve as summer residences to New York's aristocracy. Inside the home of Supreme Court Justice Van Brunt, a recently installed system of bells acting as a burglar alarm start ringing. It's only a summer house, so the judge isn't home, but his brother Holmes, who lives next door, jumps out of bed. It could just be the wind that's blown a window open and set them off, but he wakes his son Albert to check it out. Albert takes the precaution of slipping a pistol into his pocket and heads out into the chilly night air to investigate. He sees a faint light moving around deep inside the house and goes to fetch his father. A matter of minutes later, Holmes and two men on his payroll join Albert. The dusting of snow on the path crunches underfoot as the four men split up. Holmes taking up a position at the rear door with one man, his son doing the same at the front. He doesn't have to wait long. Less than a minute later, two shadowy figures emerge from the cellar door at the back of the house. Holmes points his shotgun as he shouts for the men to halt. The response is two cracks from their own guns that whistle harmlessly past him, but tell him everything he needs to know. These men are not about to surrender any time soon. Holmes fires both barrels into the closest of the two men, who collapses to the ground, stomach shredded from the blast. The second man runs back inside, making a break for the front door, not realizing the same fate awaits him there. After a brief shootout, the burglar's luck runs out, and he's killed almost instantly by a shot to the stomach. The first man, incredibly, is still alive, and still firing blindly into the darkness. Holmes waits until he hears the click of the hammer on an empty chamber before walking over to the man. The burglar's shirt is a mess of torn crimson, and Holmes doubts that even the best doctors in New York can save him. He hears footsteps and turns to see not just his son, but several neighbors awakened by the noise. The wounded man asks for water and gulps it down, wincing through the pain. Men, I won't lie to you, he says. My name is Joseph Douglas, and that man is William Mosher. He points back inside the house towards where his fellow burglar lies dead. It's no use lying now, Douglas goes on. Mosher and I stole Charlie Ross from Germantown. The case has been a regular feature in the papers for months, so Van Brunt has no need to ask him who he's talking about. He asks Douglas why they took him, and Douglas tells him it was just for the money. Then Van Brunt asks the million-dollar question, where is Charlie now? Mosher knows all about the child, Douglas says. Ask him. They tell Douglas that Mosher is dead, helping him up to a seated position so he can see for himself. They ask him again where Charlie is. God knows I tell you the truth. He says through gritted teeth. I don't know where he is. Douglas says that Superintendent Walling of the NYPD knows all about them and that they should tell him the child will be returned home in a matter of days, although he doesn't expand on how that is supposed to happen. There's a cold mist of rain falling now, soaking Douglas through to his skin. They try and move him into the house, but he cries out in pain and begs to be left where he is. One of the onlookers takes pity on Douglas and fetches an umbrella to hold over him. Because of the late hour, Nobody manages to find a doctor, and Douglas lies there for another hour before losing consciousness and dying 15 minutes later. He never gives them Charlie Ross's location. A deathbed confession is one thing, but the police need to corroborate it as best they can. Walter Ross is brought to New York later that day, and despite his tender young age, He's asked to look at the bodies of the two burglars. Walter identifies Mosher as the driver of the wagon and Douglas as the man who gave him and his brother the candy. They show him a picture of William Westervelt, Mosher's brother-in-law, but Walter doesn't recognize him. Police still suspect Westervelt is involved and even offer him immunity in exchange for the safe return of Charlie Ross, but Westervelt maintains he knows nothing. With the kidnappers now dead, Christian Ross begins to lose hope that he'll ever see his son again. In a desperate move, he issues a statement saying not only will he not press charges, but he'll pay $5,000 to anyone who returns Charlie, no questions asked. On February 25th, 1875, Pennsylvania passes a law upgrading kidnapping from a misdemeanor to a felony. Punishable by up to 25 years in prison and up to a $10,000 fine. They also build in an exemption that Christian hopes will help them in their case. This clause grants immunity to anyone returning a kidnapped child, and his hope is that it will encourage whoever has his boy to bring an end to what has been a horrific nine months for his family. Despite the financial incentive and promise of safety from prosecution, nobody comes forward the Rosses are left to wonder if their last hope of finding their boy died with Mosher and Douglas. Christian and Sarah don't give up hope though. They continue to travel all over the country, pursuing leads and spending a small fortune in the process. In 1876, Christian writes a book called The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, a Kidnapped Child, in an attempt to raise more funds to continue the search. One of the most heartbreaking aspects of this case is the hope that Christian and Sarah hold out, no matter how much time has passed. It's never more evident than in the 1880 census. Six years after Charlie's disappearance, they still list him as part of the household. Christian dies aged 73 in 1897, without ever finding out what happened to his son. By the time of his death, It's estimated he spent around $60,000 on the search, the equivalent of over a million dollars nowadays. Sarah carries on the search until her death in 1912, aged 79. Even with both parents dead, the case continues to hover over the family like a cloud. When Henry Ross, Charlie's older brother, gets engaged, the announcement in the press is dominated by the link to Charlie. The remaining siblings just don't have the energy to continue the search and do their best to get on with their lives. Incredibly, though, the story doesn't end here. In 1932, an elderly man named Gustav Blair, a carpenter from Arizona, comes forward claiming to be Charlie Ross. He claims to have been told as a child that the people he thought of as his parents were in fact no relation and that he had been the victim of a kidnapping. He tells reporters that his earliest memories are of being hidden away in a cave. This draws interesting parallels to the kidnappers' letters, which had not been made public. Some of these refer to Charlie as being held behind a rock and somewhere sunshine doesn't reach. The Ross family reject his claims, labeling him just another imposter. Blair tries to persuade them for years, but they refuse to acknowledge him. Blair eventually takes his claim to court in Arizona, though. And on May 8, 1939, after just eight minutes of deliberation, the court declares his true legal identity to be Charlie Ross. Blair changes his name legally to Charlie Ross, but the Ross family still refuse to believe him. Walter Ross declines even to meet with him. Either way, it's a sad ending. If Blair is lying... He's just the latest in a long list of disappointments. If he's telling the truth, however, the Rosses' refusal to entertain the possibility denies a family the chance to heal. Over time, both Blair and Charlie's siblings pass away, leaving nobody around who was there when the kidnapping took place. In the late 1990s, An article published in Pennsylvania History suggested that Blair's descendants have DNA ready for comparison with descendants on the Ross side. This would answer the question of Blair's authenticity once and for all. But for reasons not made public, no testing ever takes place. The fate of Charlie Ross remains a mystery to this day, but his legacy lives on. It's a case with a string of interesting footnotes. One is that Charlie Ross's disappearance is the origin of the warning to children not to take candy from strangers. It's also the first recorded kidnapping for ransom in the United States, not to mention being the catalyst for kidnapping to become a felony. A more lasting tribute though is the Charlie Project. This organization takes its name from Charlie Ross. While not affiliated with the Ross family, it is a database containing valuable information about missing persons, including thousands of documents, digital flyers, and other resources. It's a source of information rather than an organization, and as such doesn't investigate individual cases. But the Charlie Project has made a difference in a number of instances. Amongst these are several where it has helped identify bodies that were previously John Doe's, giving closure to families who otherwise might never have had any. If even a handful of people are helped by this, then maybe some good can come of Charlie's disappearance. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Gary Westover. He has been in a wheelchair all his adult life and only has partial use of one arm. As his health declines, he shares a secret that he has held close to his chest for almost a decade. About a night that started as nothing more than fun with friends, but ends with him witnessing a horrendous crime. If what he says is true, then he could have been friends all these years with a man known only to police as the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.